What's the secret, Max? The secret? Yeah, well, you seem to have it pretty figured out. The secret, I don't know. I think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to rush more. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowland. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 160 today, and we are back to Erica's choice, and I think we have a big one in your personal canon here, right? What are we talking about? We sure do. I picked Rushmore from 1998, directed by Wes Anderson, co-written by Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson, and starring Jason Schwartzman in his film debut, along with Bill Murray and Olivia Williams. It's about a teen who is completely devoted to his school until he strikes up a friendship with a rich parent and falls in love with an elementary school teacher who then falls in love with his friend. Did you know starting from Rushmore, Bill Murray has been in every Wes Anderson movie? I did know that as a matter of fact. And did you also know, I didn't realize this, the film was selected by the Library of Congress for the National Film Registry in 2016. I knew that as well. Well, who's the smart guy? If you are a member of the Rushmore Archivers Club, you probably know this stuff. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> now, I first saw this in the theater when it came out. I had already seen Bottle Rocket, but this felt like it was designed for me somehow. Probably because I was working in theater at the time as well. I also think I was the perfect age for it. I was about 22, 23. So I was far enough removed from school but close enough for it to still feel kind of poignant. What was the experience like for you? Our situations, I think, are at least similar on the surface because I encountered them in that same order, sort of in that same way, too. It was a little harder for me to see things like this in the theater at that time because Stillwater, where I'd gone to college and where I was living at the time, they only had one eight-screen multiplex, and that was devoted usually to just the most mainstream titles. For something a little artier like this, I was still having to drive an hour to Tulsa or to Oklahoma City. We definitely preferred Tulsa because they had a nice little art house theater, but my friends and I did that for this, for train spotting, a lot of films like that at the time. I was really lucky. I was in Baltimore, and next door to the theater I worked at was a movie theater that was kind of our art housey one, so I just got to walk next door. That's lucky. I wish I had that. The Royal Tenenbaums was actually the first Wes Anderson film that had a high enough profile that Stillwater played it first run. Haley and I actually went to that together. I still remember that whole day. I remember my experience with that one, too. I went with my friend Laura. But back in the good old days, though, it was fun to go out of town for this stuff, so it made Rushmore more of an event. We got to make a day out of it. Age-wise, though, I think I was a little further removed than you, obviously, so I was viewing it more according to how... It fit into the American indie scene at the time and how Anderson got my attention with how unique his films felt then. So did you have a sense of the Wes Anderson aesthetic going in? 
Because for me, though, this was his sophomore film, which can be a notoriously poorly received experience. I think he hit his stride here. And I also didn't realize this was written before Bottle Rocket. Well, this goes along with exactly what I was just saying before there. Having fun finding an emerging voice that resonated with me. I think you probably felt the same way about that, especially with the deadpan sense of humor. Bottle Rocket, it didn't have that same distinct auteur stamp on production design, for instance, so I wasn't necessarily expecting how important and meticulous those details would become, increasingly so as Anderson's career goes on. I was expecting that there would be more that I would find funny, but then the further development of the aesthetic was just a great bonus, I felt like. It makes sense, though, because it would be reasonable that someone who so carefully crafts that humor and the emotional currents that dictate how you feel about those jokes, that person would also take similar care with other elements of the film, you would hope. Though it doesn't always happen. Well, like you, I don't think I really had a big expectation going in. It was a film that I had liked before, and I thought, oh great, another film from this guy. But I remember being delighted from the very first moments. And I agree, I don't think it shares aesthetically a ton with Bottle Rocket, except for some elements that I think of now. Thinking back on Dignan's Notebook, for example, <laughs> which was one of my favorite elements from Bottle Rocket. But you've also got that character building, the story standpoint, that same richly eccentric vein, and then discovering, oh, the same kind of stable of actors or the community making the film some of whom are non-professional and kind of getting in that mindset. What you mentioned about the timeline is interesting to me as well for how it both does and doesn't apply in this case. I frequently think of that thing that Elvis Costello said way back when about that sophomore jinx. You have 20 years to write your first record, then you have six months to write your second. The fact that these weren't done in that strict chronological order, though, it really illustrates what a difference it makes in filmmaking to have resources and hands-on experience. Because to me, there is a quantum leap between Bottle Rocket and Rushmore, and then between Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums. And I think a lot of that can be chalked up to increasing budgets, reputation, and actual practical experience making movies. And that can go too far as well, which I think I see, at least personally, in some of the films further down the road. It can become a little indulgent too. The twee factor can become foregrounded instead of just filigree, which becomes a distraction for me. And I want to get into that whole concept later, but first, are you ready to get into the film? Let's do it. So, we open with Max's fever dream about his grand success, and then come crashing down to reality with Herman Bloom's very realistic, yet somehow incredibly inspiring to Max speech. And what becomes Max's resume, essentially. All of his clubs, whether he started them or is just now dedicated to them, those are his raison d'etre. They are what make him a Rushmore Yankee. But outside of them, we discover he is a very poor student. He's also on scholarship. His mom is dead. His dad is a barber. So we've got kind of the scene set for us. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Max's fever dream because I think this is such a canny and shrewd screenwriting move. We are introduced to Max as a literal dreamer. 
and I think that's real clever and maybe a little bit manipulative even because I'm aware now that when I go back and watch these of how much that softens my attitude toward him, even just slightly. I totally agree. I hadn't really thought about it until multiple viewings of this. Now, I mentioned his dad is a barber and he is played by Seymour Cassell. And this was not the first time I encountered Seymour Cassell because I feel like he's been in the background for a long time in my film journey. I came to his John Cassavetes films later, so I wasn't seeing him as a person, as an actor in chronological order, if you know what I mean. So it was kind of a surprise to discover he was pretty much a beefcake early on. What was your sense of him as an actor? Yeah, I think it was quite different. Also, speaking of the beefcake thing, if you want to talk about striking physical attributes, go watch Minion Moskowitz and check out that mustache. That's Bo Show. Not to be defeated. He's the heavyweight champion with that mustache. My journey is a lot different from yours, I think, since Cassavetes has been so central to my cinematic education for as long as I can remember. So Seymour Cassell was obviously more of a known quantity for me when this came out, and he's just such a compelling guy. I was more used to him being more energetic, even forceful in some cases. Maybe even having a dark edge sometimes in things like the killing of a Chinese bookie. But it was fun to think of him on this set as being a source of calm. He's that reassuring presence, I think. An elder statesman of American independent film right there in your cast. And sometimes it's a little sad to see a diminished version of a performer in their later years. Especially someone who might have been such a presence early on. But... I don't get that sense from him. I feel like he's never lost a step, basically, and that his strength just changed form slightly. It became more about generosity than that Cassavetes-ish confrontation. So when we see him here, he's the perfect dad. He's not in your way. He's supportive, but he's a bit befuddled at the same time. I think people aren't as generous with the reading of this character sometimes, too. I think he knows everything that's going on. And I think there's a lot of hurt that he carries. For example, from Max's denials of him and who he is and wanting to be associated with that. You see it in little ways. You see it when he sizes up people that Max is introducing him to for the first time. What story has Max told them about me? But you're right. He never does it in a way that interferes with what Max is trying to do. I think that's a great point. Befuddled's probably not the word. He knows enough to not confront Max about these things, but is maybe trying to decide, how can I best help Max figure this out for himself? So then, Max discovers, randomly, this very special book that is going to kick off the next few months of his life. There's this quote that starts it all about leading an extraordinary life by Jacques Cousteau, and that eventually leads him to Miss Cross the elementary school teacher he falls hard for. And he thinks that there's this grand gesture that is going to win her. He just has to figure out the right one. Is it going to be saving Latin or writing a hit play or building an aquarium? So meanwhile, he's been growing closer to Herman Bloom. And within that friendship, Miss Cross comes into Herman's orbit. And like Max, Herman falls really hard for her. Now, this was a pretty big departure, at least in my estimation, for Bill Murray. And like we said, he's since been in all of these other Wes Anderson films. 
What do you make of their partnership? It's a departure if you ignore the razor's edge, which I think, unfortunately, a lot of people did. But this desire to be more than just funny has obviously been within him for a long time. And Rushmore is really ground zero for what we think of now as the renaissance of Bill Murray, essentially going on to Lost in Translation and all these other films, Broken Flowers. I think Quick Change hinted at things to come a little bit, but Rushmore really sealed the deal. Quick Change, one of our shared very favorites. But I think this partnership is great for both of them. Murray is definitely, like Seymour Cassell, I imagine, that reassuring presence. He protected Anderson from some of Gene Hackman's more, let's say, abrasive tendencies (laughs) on the set of the Royal Tenenbaums. And then Murray gets material that clearly speaks to him and that he enjoys performing because he likely doesn't have to work if he doesn't want to. So this must feel like vacation, although he jokes about that it's really only a vacation for Wes Anderson and the rest of them show up for low wages, long hours, and stale bread. (laughs) Well, it strikes me with them a bit like Herman and Max, sort of this meeting of equals and a trust that just somehow seems to occur organically. And I think of Bill Murray as a person who is always willing to take a chance. And I really love the specific partnership of theirs. It's my favorite character that he's gotten to play, though I have not seen The Life Aquatic. I think you're going to love that one, too. And Seymour Cassell in that, I think you're especially going to enjoy. Well, good. Well, speaking of aquatic, if Dr. Guggenheim, played by Brian Cox, wasn't yet ready to fully kick Max out of school, then this aquarium stunt is the one that seals Max's fate. And off he goes to public school. So why do you think Dr. Guggenheim hates Max so much? He has eyes and ears. Is that why? (laughs) He knows a manipulative narcissist when he sees one. You don't think it has anything to do with the same reason that Duncan, one of the other students, bullies him? Meaning, if Max cast Dr. Guggenheim in one of his plays, would Dr. Guggenheim feel more fondly towards him? I don't think so. He might still do it, but he wouldn't feel any sense of warmth about it. These are two different things between Guggenheim and Duncan, and I think they both serve a very specific purpose. It's just good writing, I think. Every Dennis the Menace needs his Mr. Wilson, basically. We can't have an entire miniature universe of people that are entirely taken in by Max or ignoring him as harmless or are enamored of him or made a fool of by him. That's how you end up with garbage like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ah, got it. I think Dr. Guggenheim would be the one to maybe punch him in the hallway after the play. Yeah, from a writing perspective, you have to have someone who is on to him and will at least do whatever they can in their limited capacity to make him face consequences, like expelling him. That hits him where he lives, having everything he cares about stripped away and then the added indignity of public school that he perceives piled on top of that. That is the engine that makes this a drama. Without Guggenheim, you don't have a dramatic arc. And then Duncan, he's a bully anyway. And when dealing with that, a lot of people know that the survival method is mostly based upon not drawing attention to yourself. Max's reason for getting out of bed every morning is to draw attention to himself. So he is on Duncan's radar. Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned way earlier about this idea of having more of a soft focus on Max, maybe the first time you see him because of this fever dream. So now we've both seen this multiple times. We know who Max is. So questions for you. 
Do you identify with Max? Were you one of these extracurricular kings? <laughs> which club would you form? And which nation would you be in Model UN? I don't exactly identify with Max. When it comes to my school experience, my method was to quietly consolidate power and wield my influence from behind the scenes, kind of a puppet master scenario. So you would be China in Model UN? No, actually, in all seriousness, my graduating class was 52 people. And in my high school, ninth through 12th grade, there were maybe 300 kids total. So you literally knew everyone. There was no power to wield, essentially, over that small of a student body. In clubs, I joined things. I was in the Native American club. I was on the yearbook staff. My main thing was being on the academic team because we actually got to travel and go to competitions to do that. So that was always fun. You were on the basketball team though, right? Yeah, I played basketball. We had fencing one year as well, but it wasn't an official thing like a ton of things at our school. Our geometry teacher, he had fenced in the army and so he had a lot of equipment and so he just brought it to school one day and started to teach us after hours some. Sounds like a really fun approach. Yeah, Mr. Piper was pretty cool and he actually made geometry interesting, which is no small feat. Uh, I like geometry. <laughs> yeah, show me your proof of that. <laughs> Get it? I do. So anyway, there were four or five of us that did the fencing thing after school for a while. Extracurriculars, though, for us were kind of extra, extracurricular. It was my group of friends that, in various combinations, did everything together. Playing music, role-playing games. As far as what I would start now... Obviously, it would be a film club, and that's kind of informally what I did even back then, because my house was the central meeting spot to watch movies. And as far as Model UN goes, this is an easy one. Norway. What about you? Before I get to the Model UN, I have to tell you, speaking of film clubs, I showed Closetland at my house one time for my fellow Amnesty International crowd, <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty typical of me. So, for Model UN... Wait, was Apartment Zero checked out that day? It must have been. I would be Paraguay because I played the president of Paraguay in a school play for some reason. The costume I tried to make was somewhere between Prince Charles and Muammar Gaddafi and maybe a little bit of Juan Perón in there because I know nothing about Paraguay. I was going to say, have you been to Paraguay? Nope. I don't know anything about it. This was elementary school. I plead ignorance on this one. Well, that being said, is your relation to this film based upon how much of yourself you see in Max? Are you this overachiever drama club kid? I feel like that's a loaded question because of the way <laughs> you're looking at me. I was actually not a drama club kid. The answer is yes, you do. <laughs> okay. All right. This probably hits me where I live. Now, I like to think that I don't identify with Max specifically because you know how literal mind I am because I did well in school and I feel like I know my strengths. And I also don't think I have the same need to be universally admired and loved, though maybe you disagree with me on that one. No, I think it would probably be more accurate if somehow you could make Lisa Simpson the lead character in Rushmore. Okay, then you, you got, got me there. You got me there. But... I did form the Political Awareness Club. I coordinated Teen Court. I was the president of my Teen Amnesty Court. International chapter. <laughs> I played tennis. I was on the yearbook staff. I was also an assistant to the vice principal. 
Now, do you want to ask me how many red berets I had? I want to say three. Two. I had a black one as well. Did so... they take yours away when you quit the Guardian Angels? Is that why you lost one? <laughs> they let me keep the best. I did, though, write plays when I was a kid. Then I wrote stories and longer stories and screenplays, but nothing as good as Max's output. I can tell you that much. Now that we're talking about it, I do remember one specific kid in our high school. He was a couple of years older than me that was oddly ambitious in his own way. It didn't have the same creative vibe as Max's ambition. It was much more strictly political because even at 15, 16, he was a weird little disingenuous gladhander, basically. Like he was the boy mayor of our town is how he carried himself all the time. Weird. Yeah, it was not entertaining or pleasant. And he never tried to build us an aquarium. I remember one guy from my high school who was the, I want to be kind of the most popular guy and I'm funny, but I'm also trying out for American Gladiators for some reason. But that's the closest that I can think. Yeah, this wasn't like that. This guy acted like he was running for office from the day he was born. Well, let's leave all those jerks behind. Okay. So Max is now fully ensconced over at Grover Cleveland and I do have to say, it makes me feel really good when he's found his own crew over there as well. I like to think that the Grover Cleveland kids maybe do benefit just a little bit from this impossible dreamer. But then, Max discovers, while he's working on his next play and making all these connections, that Herman and Miss Cross are intimately involved. And really, before his career at Grover Cleveland can get off the ground, he decides he's going to drop out, go to work with Dad. So you asked this question in the Tremors episode, whether the romantic element needed to be in the film. In this one, we've got multiple angles of romance from Dirk's mom to Margaret Yang to Miss Cross. How do you find Max navigates all these relationships? Unlike Tremors, it is absolutely necessary here because it's another really crucial humanizing element. I think the way it functions for me is that it exposes kids doing things that are a kid's idea of adult behavior, which is an interesting thing that goes throughout this whole film. Kids trying to be miniature adults. And then that further leads me to what I think is the most interesting question about all of this is how different is that from actual adult behavior? Because the difference is just polish when it comes down to it. Your impulses are the same. You just have, hopefully, a greater level of sophistication when you try to pull these things off. It's how we learn things. Crushes on teachers, that's eternal. I went through that, my first grade teacher, Miss Thurman. She had that Dorothy Hamill haircut in 1976. I remember it to this day. It's another touch that makes me more sympathetic to Max, I think. He isn't so driven that he escapes what has been a motivation since time immemorial, doing something to impress a girl. I'm not as sympathetic later for how he crosses boundaries in pursuit of these things, but I can certainly relate to that impulse impairing your decision-making process. And I like that Anderson keeps this part grounded, initially at least. Miss Cross addresses this problem right away with Max, and she's doing her best to steer him in a different, more productive direction, but it does get a little gray later. When he climbs into her window, for instance, and is laying in her bed, she attracts all this attention from a certain type of overachiever, I think. And I think Max, Herman, and her husband are all like this to a degree. So we can infer that 
a little bit, at least, this is what she responds to. She also uses the excuse of being married to this dead man to carry on with her own sort of arrested development that's similar, but in its own way, you know, apples and oranges to Max's and Herman's, forged mostly from dealing or not dealing with grief as she does. Because Max rightly points out to her she is living in her dead husband's childhood bedroom. And I think you're so right. Max navigates all this like a little kid with this vernacular of a movie teen or adult that he's seen on screen or on stage but doesn't understand. He hasn't learned these things from his family or through his own experiences. And I think it reflects in general that he doesn't really know how to have a real interpersonal relationship with anyone until he meets Herman Bloom and slowly figures it out. Everyone else is really just a character in the play of his life. That is so strange because later on down in my notes, I very specifically point out the way Max goes about this, we're all the lead in our own story. Great minds think alike. And I'm not saying that he doesn't have actual feelings, but he has a lot to learn about himself and other people. As you were saying all that, something I haven't thought about very much just occurred to me with this. How much of that do you think is the fallout from his mother's death when he was so young? Absolutely. So he doesn't have the opportunity to see this behavior modeled by his parents. And I think all of these romances, real or imagined or legitimate, it makes the age of 15 so incredibly poignant. He's building up this place so he can say later on that he was in the shit. And speaking of shit, Max totally acts like one. He tries to murder Herman in an increasingly complex series of stunts. And it works in a sense. It drives a wedge between Herman and Miss Cross, but... Max has to finally understand, albeit in his limited way, that Miss Cross will never have him. And then he makes it his mission to help Herman believe in himself again and try to pull off some grand gesture to win back Miss Cross, which doesn't work. He does go back to school, though, and like it began with bringing them together, Max's big play reunites Herman and Miss Cross. So that leads to my next question. Which of Max's plays would you like to be cast in? No question. Serpico. Oh, you stole mine. Yeah. True crime ties, action on stage, more drama backstage, that train. What's not to love about that? I want to play Serpico, though. Is that allowed? <laughs> sure. Okay, thank you. So what do you make of all of these influences on Wes Anderson? Harold and Maude, The Graduate, he cited, and I know that you noticed a few others. For better or worse, I think they are abundantly obvious. I don't think it is overstating things to say that this would not exist as we know it without those things. In some of his work, I know it gets to the point that it could even be considered a detriment if he isn't careful. I file this under the same criticism that I sometimes have of Tarantino crossing the line from homage into pastiche. I once read a series of articles about Kill Bill and the Miltonic illusion, in which the author was going through and in minute detail pointing out influences for practically every single frame of Kill Bill, thinking that they were pointing out Tarantino's brilliance, not realizing that the cumulative effect of this was exposing that there wasn't a single original idea in the film. Interesting. And if you're a viewer like me who maybe hasn't seen all of those influences, 
you don't get that perspective. Yeah, influencers are fine as long as they don't overtake everything else. And especially, please, just be honest about them and the extent to which you lean on them. For me, if anything, Max is most like I imagine Maud to have been as a young person. And it's as if Herman is the herald who falls under Max's spell a little bit and learns what it is to be young again. I don't see the graduate quite as much, but the graduate I've seen two, three, four times, but not in a long time. And really it comes down, for me, Max is a character for all time. One of the true greats. And who gives a shit about Benjamin? As long as Catherine Ross does, no one else matters. <laughs> there you go. Now, I don't think of Bottle Rocket having the same visual aesthetic as this film does. We talked about that a little bit earlier. And this is so dominated by color and visuals and even drawn detail. We've got the first family portrait, the children's paintings, the way the Cousteau book is used, the aquarium, the theatrical design, the clothing, on and on and on but it still doesn't seem to be taken to the same detail as in Royal Tenenbaums, which for me is basically three times the cast and a thousand times the detail. I think a lot of that has to do with something that I mentioned earlier. In this case, specifically what had to be the increasing budgets as these films went on. Because you have the same production designer, David Wasco, on all of Anderson's first three films, coincidentally enough, also the production designer on Kill Bill. Oh, I, gosh, I didn't realize that. So when you look back and watch these things as they evolve, I really do think it has a lot to do with how much money and how many resources they had to throw at this thing, ever increasing from Bottle Rocket to Rushmore to Tenenbaums. Now, having said that, I really do agree with this perspective from a Criterion essay where Wes Anderson is compared to Ernst Lubitsch in terms of packing the maximum amount of information into a minimum amount of screen time. So I think about that in Herman always wearing the same suit. He only changes the shirt and tie, and those two things always match by color. Max's braces. Rosemary's handwriting. Back again to Dignan's notebook. The Rushmore students' Halloween costumes when they throw mud at Max. Those are little kids. Dr. Guggenheim's artwork. The way he sits on the couch, always with his mouth partially opened. I see this as a function, actually, of just being a really great collaborator, or at the very least being a great communicator, because you may have this information-rich universe in your head, but you absolutely need those production designers and costumers and performers to succeed in getting that on the screen. You cannot do something this intricate on this scale by yourself. Some might argue, actually, that there's too much information in some of these frames. Do you ever feel that way? Is it ever overwhelming to you? Not for this film. This just means I can watch it 50 mm. times and always find a little something different that makes me smile. And it's really because of that too, along with the story and the acting, that it has a unique and cohesive heightened theatricality throughout. I know I'm watching a film and I love it. Not just this film, either. I would go as far as to say that the heightened theatricality is a signature of Anderson's. But similar to the information in the frame question, you don't find the constant awareness of the artificiality to be detrimental at all. Because it's what you signed up for, right? You know this going in. I think so. And it just speaks to me. Everything is arranged so specifically. There are no accidents. I like to think even some ad-libbing managed to get filmed perfectly. 
the framing, like you mentioned, the music, obviously, I mean, none of it is diegetic. It is all there for a reason. So maybe with some people that wouldn't work for me, but for this, it does. It's what I want. I have the same hopeful feeling about the improvisation stuff getting in there sometimes, but I think it's probably not as much as we hope for because on that scale, you've got the Coen brothers as completely clamped down. This is exactly how it needs to be delivered. And then Wes Anderson is maybe just a step removed from that in terms of how clear an idea he has in his head and what he wants that to be on screen. And then I think you got to throw it to Owen Wilson as well. He, his hand in writing this, and then you've got the other Wilson brothers who I think they just have their own language. Now, speaking of the actors and acting, I like that the mix of actors that are professional, non-professional, it seems incredibly realistic without being a joke, though some people might not feel the same way. For me, it even starts out with Max's math teacher from his dream, because Jason Schwartzman inhabits the part. He lives the part. But the teacher sort of speaks his lines, and I have no problem with this. And it's the way some of the words fit into mouths differently, like Margaret or Max's dad. I've mentioned before several times what a huge fan I am of non-professionals, so you know I love them showing up here. Kumar, that guy is never not funny. What'd you think of the play, Mr. Little Jeans? Best play ever, man. Yeah, and totally. He gets to do everything. He gets to stab Gene Hackman. I mean, this guy is the best. I think my favorite line of his is in Bottle Rocket when the heist is going so wrong. And he said, oh man, I lost my touch. <laughs> yes, I totally agree. I love that same moment. My favorite visual in this is the car slowly coming towards him, but he's fine. But there's this fuzzy line too, when you talk about professionals and non-professionals. Bill Murray, he tells a great story that he still gives Schwartzman a hard time sometimes about. They did, the night before principal photography started, a read-through of a lot of this stuff, and Schwartzman was terrible. Oh, really? I don't know the story. Bill Murray had to go back to his hotel room and drink himself to sleep thinking, I've made the biggest mistake of my life. Yikes. And he still reminds him of that to this day, that it was just one bad night, but it was apparently a really bad one. <laughs> well, outside of non-professional actors, another thing that we talk a lot about on the podcast are the good and bad of coming of age films which a lot of people consider Rushmore to be. Do you think of this as a coming-of-age film? Nope, not at all. The heightened theatricality of it that we were just talking about, it sort of short-circuits that part of the story for me. For me, coming-of-age requires more realistic growth and understanding, I feel like. And I don't see that here because he's won the day, basically, by continuing with the same behaviors. His best play ever is a rousing success. He has a new girlfriend. He's slightly more sheepish and isn't lying as much, but he's still setting off explosives in a school and has magically won everyone over with little to no acknowledgement of previous trouble that he's caused. That thing that we mentioned before, he's still much more the lead in his own play than a real 15-year-old. And you can read that line when he has that exchange with Miss Cross, I wasn't hurt that bad, more than one way. And one of those ways is that it didn't hurt because he is pathological and nothing hurts him he just didn't let it register well i'm not sure if it's a coming of age film or not because really i don't know what age max is ultimately coming to at this point and this isn't a situation many of us would find ourselves in but 
it does feel like a story about a specific time period because I think that's ultimately because we're always aware that Max is a teenager regardless or because of his actions and endeavors. Taking that even further, by extension, I think, Schwartzman is always going to be Max. Do you think that his career has suffered from this having such an iconic first role that you cannot get past? To me, he doesn't seem like the kind of person who necessarily needs to rise or fall on his acting. He also has his music, which he had the entire time as well. I've seen him in other things that I really liked. So I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it keeps him up at night. And I did really like Bored to Death. We watched mm -hmm. that a little bit. Well, as far as the teenager thing goes with Max and the coming of age thing, maybe I'm just being, maybe I'm just a little too far removed from that to accurately remember those ups and downs and how quickly they're resolved sometimes. You were 22, 23 when you saw this the first time, still kind of in that young adult window when everything is heightened. Do you miss that part of your youth? No. <laughs> <laughs> I miss being uh, cute as a 22, 23-year-old, but no, I don't miss those periods. You don't wish we lived in Melrose Place? Uh, no, thank you. So I spoke about this early on about that same time, that I did think it was a perfect age for me to find the film. Because I think of this as also marking another big shift for me, for precisely the reasons that critics like Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael struggled in their opinions of it, it didn't fit neatly into a box, Max is unlikable, it's very dark and very funny. So I can remember what it was like, for example, before Fargo and after Fargo, before Rushmore, after Rushmore, letting a movie follow its own bent, like you're letting the characters follow their own bent. Not fitting neatly into a box is actually something I struggle with too, especially when, say, I'm trying to describe Max. For example, precocious isn't exactly it. I can never really zero in on what the right label should be. Do you have a description of him? I don't either, and I was struggling, sort of like we talked about earlier. Is he actually a sociopath? I'm not totally sure, but I just like him more than I think I would a sociopath. Yeah, that struggle, I think, it's the sign to me of a great character, that it's not so simple. I'm glad of it. It makes me work a little harder to get into the movie. So why do you think then that Herman and Max are attracted to each other? They both love to see themselves reflected back at themselves. I think you're so right. There's a little bit of hero worship. There's wishing to be like the other. There's some equality. No one else fully understands them as much as they don't understand themselves sometimes or then really understand themselves but want to hide from it. Yeah, Herman is clearly lost. Maybe not so much as Max is at this point. But neither one of them are the greatest judges of character. It just goes on and on. They are very similar in a lot of ways, and they like to see that. I almost forgot. I wanted to mention this. You brought it up earlier. The skullduggery between them when oh, they are trying to do each so other perfect. in. It's so perfect. The bees, the bike, this back and forth, the Bentley's brakes. Do you notice what's happening here? A lot of bees in there. Yeah. I like to think that that, even down to that level, was absolutely intentional and right in line with Wes Anderson's meticulous production process. So maybe it's the fact that they're called Rushmore Yankees, but I never would have guessed that this was filmed around Houston. But 
knowing that now and having been there with this viewing, it seems wildly obvious. Yeah, that Yankee mascot, that's a bit of a head fake for sure. Does it frequently, do you feel like, make a difference for you to have a better hold on regionalisms or geography when you are approaching a film? I guess it really depends on the film because we've been on this regional horror or regional oddities bent. And I think seeing those in context sometimes helps, but I don't know that I think about it otherwise. I did say I was in Baltimore at the time, so I was thinking more East Coast in general. Whereas with Bottle Rocket, couldn't be anywhere other than Texas. I definitely like how those things work for me sometimes. And you mentioned a great example, Baltimore. You can't take Baltimore out of the John Waters equation, for instance. You need that to fully understand it. It wouldn't let you. You couldn't scrape <laughs> that Baltimore stank off of it. But even down to things like Teenage Strangler and its West Virginia ties, I really enjoy that a lot of the time. It can help me feel like I know the characters better if I have a tie to the area, or even the opposite. If it's somewhere I've never been and don't know well, I can have a romanticized idea of that place that the characters or the story then work for or against, but either way, it's fun to think about. Well, I wish I still had a charming idea of St. Louis, but unfortunately, Fatal Exam threw that <laughs> away for me. But anyway, let's talk music. I know um, I've waited a long time. Yeah, I've been waiting to talk about this too. I mean, we could take the whole episode just on the music, but I'm going to try to boil it down to a simple question. Do you have a favorite song on the soundtrack or the use of a song that seems perfect? Yes, I do. And I hope, again, I'm not stealing yours this time, but it is I Am Waiting by the Rolling Stones. So much of this song is perfect for this scene and this movie. The song as it exists in music history, you've got it as a kind of precursor to the quiet, loud, quiet formula that bands like the Pixies or Nirvana would later exploit to great effect. And that structure is brilliant for this, especially with the awkwardness and tentativeness of that odd meter in the verses. It's not so straightforward 4-4. You can't quite get a handle on this time signature and you're feeling your way through the verse. And then in this melodramatic rush, Everything falls together for a few moments and you've got this great chorus that makes total sense bursting through. Easy to get a handle on. But then it doesn't last long and it goes back to that more musically confounding idea a couple of times. And you go back and forth with this and then the rest of the time, as the lyrics say, you are waiting. This is adolescence in a nutshell in a three minute pop song. Well, surprisingly, you didn't steal mine because I actually chose three of them <laughs> and not one of them is that. Big surprise. <laughs> Probably you would be able to guess. Cat Stevens oh, is yeah. at the very top. Two beautiful Cat Stevens songs here that give it soul, maybe that it doesn't quite have, but that it aspires to. But most of all, it's Ooh La La by The Faces. It's perfect. That's just one of my favorite songs, period. But there's just no better party, summing up, wrap up song for the end of the film. And it just sounds so good. Now, like I said, none of this is diegetic. Everything is completely on the nose. And I love that. And I think the soundtrack in general is one for the ages. And maybe now we're a little bit more used to it. But I felt like it was a little bit more of a surprise there and how it was wielded. Maybe again, the Tarantino would really shift that discussion, but I think this fits in so well. 
Well, I just have a couple more questions for you before we get away. Now, here's the primary question. Do you, Coralane, love anything as much as Max loves Rushmore? This is kind of a sad answer. This is basically, maybe I did once, but not anymore. That's why I asked it. Okay. <laughs> I think <laughs> that what you're asking about, that requires youth, very specifically. It's a hard thing to maintain that level of devotion and enthusiasm as you accumulate more wisdom, because one of the byproducts of that wisdom is understanding that very little was ever as important as we made it out to be as kids. That's why we need all these stages of life. It's thrilling to be able to experience those feelings when they happen in that part of your life. But it's also crucial to be able to later objectively look at those things and achieve a specific honesty with yourself about it. It's the same for me outside of this movie because I love this movie. Though, if I think more deeply about it, and this comes specifically from my childhood, it is the ocean. The ocean being in the water, I love to that degree. I thought you were going to say your Incredible Hulk TV tray. That goes with it. Speaking of details, do you have a favorite detail from the movie? I am going to take a page out of your book and say three. Oh, I can't wait. Top of the list when Bill Murray blocks that kid's shot on the basketball court. <laughs> that is the best. Of course, the O-R they joke. Oh, are they? Can't go wrong with that. But I think the one that surprises me every time, the restorative nature of that haircut. When Herman gets straightened out, the tenderness that goes along with that ritual and Seymour Cassell imparting that father to son thing, the care that I take with doing this as a vocation. There are so many things built into that. And then the effect that it has on Bill Murray I think that's the one detail that so pleasantly surprises me every time. The one that I love is at the play at the end that Max's dad and Max's teacher get to know each other. And you think, oh, there's a little spark of a new beginning, possibly, because it wouldn't have happened with the other path that Max was on. So I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask anyway, is this your favorite Anderson? And if it's not, what is? It's second. The Royal Tenenbaums is far and away my favorite. That's what I was going to guess. Everything after the Royal Tenenbaums feels a little bit like slightly diminishing returns. Not that they're bad, but for me, in the way I react to this film, it hits such a peak with the Royal Tenenbaums that it would be hard to match. It doesn't help sometimes that we get these rehash themes with the daddy issues and whatnot. It's getting to the point where, from a new Wes Anderson project, I need to see something that moves in a different direction significantly. Well, it's definitely mine. It always has been. I suspect it always will be, and I'm okay with that. To me, this is a perfect film. Unlike his subsequent films, including Tenenbaums, I feel Rushmore deeply, and I don't feel that style has overridden substance. It just feels like a perfect combination for me here. I see where that comes from a little bit, because see if you feel the same about this. Bottle Rocket was first, obviously, but even having seen that first, the feeling that I associate with Rushmore and that I think you maybe even do more strongly is that you always love the first one that made such a huge impression, even though you saw Bottle Rocket beforehand. I think so. Absolutely. One last thing before we get out of here that I wanted to ask you how you felt about. I was reading this interesting thread on Twitter a couple of weeks ago in which the original poster 
said that there were no new auteurs that really appealed to them. And people all the way down the thread were chiming in with, what about Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, etc." A lot of people in that same sort of bubble, apparently not realizing that the movies they are talking about were made decades ago. The sort of evergreen vitality of some of these films by some of these directors, I think, warp our perceptions of them. They still feel so fresh and relevant to us as individuals sometimes. Does that make it easier for you to sometimes forget that they're over two decades old? It sure does for me. And I just keep forgetting that this was 98. And then my recommendation when we get to it was the year after. And that seems crazy to me, too. I think of these things as just being right around the previous corner. Well, then, speaking of recommendations, what do you have for us? I picked Election from 1999, directed by Alexander Payne from a screenplay that he co-wrote with Jim Taylor based on the novel of the same name by Tom Parada and stars Matthew Broderick and Reese Witherspoon about a student body election and an overachieving student. I like to think of Election as if Tracy Flick were the untalented but in intensely motivated version of Max Fisher, and then Mr. McAllister is a young Dr. Guggenheim. She's basically the Leslie Nope that you wouldn't want to ever fall asleep around. Very true. It is richly populated with rounded characters, and most of all, it is unrelenting, and it shows that the Tracy Flicks of this world will always be on the ascendant. But that is my cynicism and frustration talking. Now, I didn't know that there was an alternate ending of the film in which Tracy and Mr. McAllister basically settle their differences to an extent. <sighs> yeah, the final ending is way better and more dark and is once again unrelenting and very downcast. That's why I like it. What was your recommendation? Well, I mentioned it briefly just a little while ago. I want to recommend The Razor's Edge from 1984. And that's directed by John Byram, who also co-wrote the adaptation with the film star Bill Murray. I didn't realize that. That one and Where the Buffalo Roam, I think, are two holes in my viewing. Oh, I love Where the Buffalo Roam so much. That was definitely one of my early cable, late night discoveries that at that age I probably shouldn't have been watching. But I fell in love with that movie. Because as crazy as Bill Murray is, you also have Peter Boyle showing up as his lawyer ramping up the crazy even that much more. <laughs> Great casting. But The Razor's Edge, in addition to what I've mentioned so far, it also starred Teresa Russell, Catherine Hicks, and Lantern favorite Denham Elliott. Are you the one who has a big beef with Teresa Russell? I don't have a big beef with Teresa Russell. I just think she is completely arrestingly weird and out of place all the time. I don't think it's bad. I love to see it when she shows up. But I never think she belongs where she is anytime she shows up on screen. She is a weirdo. That is why I like her, though. This is also based on the novel by Somerset Mom, and it's about one man's search for enlightenment in the wake of World War I. I remember vividly reading the story when I was in school. Have you seen the Tyrone Power version? I've seen bits of it a million years ago. Well, this one was not a popular nor critical success at the time, but I think that it's time for at least a slight reevaluation. Just as a film, I think it's better than it was initially given credit for, but I think most of all it's fascinating as an artifact, especially for fans of Bill Murray and his journey. I love the way that the film functions as a real-life example of its thesis, and you can see that Murray is not quite there yet. 
when you watch the movie. How you can't force that maturation or peace or enlightenment. And the failure of this film was catalyst for growth. He took four years away from the business after this, went to Paris, read philosophy, took his family out of the spotlight. And so without the razor's edge and what did and did not work about it, we don't have the Bill Murray that shows up in Rushmore. So watch it for the text and the eventual meta text that comes from that. I think that's so interesting that you say that because now that I think about it, you can write that someone is not quite where they need to be and write about their struggles, but then trying to act that seems like it would be a very difficult task. Well, that's what makes it so interesting and works on so many levels because he thought he was at the point where he could do that. Right. As a performer and a writer. And to convey that character's eventual arrival at enlightenment, it's ironic that you've got the performer underneath you see it seeping through that he's not able to do that. It's so fun to watch all these things happening at the same time. Well, I look forward to finally catching up with it. And once again, that's two great recommendations, Election and The Razor's Edge. And that brings us to the end of episode 160. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, Heinz Stuss, John Main, Roger Sneed, Chris Polizza, Matt Kukulka, and David Harrington. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us there. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 